Good morning, everybody. My name is Mark. I'm one of the other pastors here, and I'm so glad you joined us. We're in a message series we're calling Crosswords, where we're looking at the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. And if you have missed any of the messages in this series, you can go to our website, tlc.org, and watch any or all of them to your heart's content. They'll be there anytime uh, for as long as there's an internet, and it is all for free. That's tlc.org. Today we're talking about the sixth saying of Jesus. But before we get to that saying, I want to begin with a little story of my own. Several years ago, I was at a pastor's conference, and the keynote speaker was a pastor named Bill Hybels. Probably have heard of Bill Hybels. He founded a church called Willow Creek outside of Chicago, one of the largest churches in the nation now. And Bill was telling us about a time in his ministry when he felt like he needed an outlet. He, he wanted to get outside the confines of his office, and in particular, he also wanted to have an opportunity to mingle with people who might not otherwise visit Willow Creek Community Church. And so he decides to take up sailing or resume his hobby of sailing. He'd sailed as a young person, and he gets this, I don't know, 23, 25-foot sailboat and starts to sail on Lake Michigan there and other lakes in that area. And his plan begins to work just as he had hoped. He starts to get to know, make friendships with other people in the sailing community. In fact, one night, he and his wife, Lynn, they're anchored uh, in this lake, and they're on their boat, and a guy at this, in, that owns this big yacht comes over in his dinghy and invites him to a party he's having on the yacht, and they accept. He taxis them back over to this yacht, and it's not exactly a Christian crowd, but that's okay. This is part of the plan. Bill wants to befriend these people, earn an opportunity to be heard so that he might share his love of Jesus. And that opportunity came much sooner than he had anticipated. Because at the end of the evening, they're leaving. Lynn goes down the ladder on the side of this yacht, gets into the dinghy. Bill goes down the ladder. He has one foot on the ladder, one foot now in the dinghy. And just then, the host of the party, he leans over the rail he says, hey, Bill, before you go, I've always wondered what it means to become a Christian, and I'm hoping that you will tell us. I want you to freeze that frame right there. One foot on the ladder, one foot in the dinghy. You've heard of the elevator speech? This is the shorter version of the elevator speech. This is you better say what you have to say before you get wet speech. And so Bill tells us in a moment of inspiration, he says, well... It goes like this. It's the difference between do versus done. Religion says do. You got to do this, that, and the other thing. And the, the list may vary, but if you do all the things on the list, that's how you get your ticket punched. Christianity says it's done. It's done because Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. The only thing we can do is humbly receive what he has done for us. And he changes us from the inside out as he adopts us into his family. And right about that time, he plops into the dinghy. His time is up. But that's a great answer. Do versus done. And we're going to see Jesus Christ affirm that today because religion does say do you know do this pilgrimage do this ritual do these commands jesus christ says it's done 
And so I want you to open your Bibles, I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 19. This is where we left off last week, by the way, John chapter 19. We're going to pick up at verse 28 as a bit of a review and then move on to the sixth saying. The verses will also be in your notes or on screen, John chapter 19. Knowing that everything had now been finished and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Renee talked about this last week as well as verse 29. So let's jump to verse 30 now. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. All the other gospels mention that after receiving a drink that was presented to him on the stick, that Jesus cries out with a loud voice. Is that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? But only John gives us the content of that statement, that loud cry, because John is at the foot of the cross. He can hear what Jesus actually says when he cries out, it is finished. And take note, he doesn't say, I am finished. That would be akin to a cry of defeat. He doesn't scream out, you're finished. Scream condemnation of the people that are witnessing the crucifixion. He says, I am finished. Or excuse me, it is finished. (laughs) It is finished. A monumental cry of victory. In our time, we've perhaps heard a lesser version of this. Uh, how many of you remember the summer of 1969? And I'm not talking about, you know, the Brian Adams song. I'm talking about the actual summer of 1969. Some of us that are, you know, 50 or better, right? Now, and I understand that we're in Santa Cruz, so the late 60s may remain a blur for some of us here today. I get that. I was only five in the summer of 16, uh, 1969, so, so I'm somewhat innocent, uh, at least I was more so then than I am now, but I have just a few memories from when I was five years old, and one of them comes from the summertime when there was the very first landing on the moon. Any of you remember being glued to your television sets, watching this play? I remember I was in our living room watching this on a black and white TV. My mother was there. My brother was out robbing a bank or something like that. I'm not sure. I'm confident it was me and my mom watching this, and the the lunar module, it touches down on the surface of the moon, and then you hear Neil Armstrong's voice, Houston, tranquility base here. And then do you remember what he said next? Say it with me. The eagle has landed. Wow. I mean, that, that is such a cool statement. The eagle has landed, inspired a country inspired millions of little boys like me that were just fascinated with with space and exploration because the eagle had landed. And that little four-word statement, it sums up all that had preceded it, right? It it sums up the, the plans and the sacrifice and all of the work that went into achieving that lunar landing. And so it was a monumental statement. But infinitely 
more monumental than that. One of the most historic statements ever made. So Jesus says in the sixth saying, when he says, it is finished. We could spend uh, much time unpacking the meaning of that one statement. But I just want to point out three observations here today. I'm going to ask you to write this first one down, then I'll explain it. First of all, when he said, it is finished, I think he's saying that Christ's work, it's done. Christ's work, done. Let me show you what I'm talking about here. In the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to his work often, and his work refers to everything that he came to the earth to do. In his 33 years here on the planet, he had work that he was committed to doing. In fact, in John chapter 4, verse 34, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. Now, here in chapter 4, he's looking toward the finish line. While he's hanging on the cross in chapter 19, he's at the finish line. And he says that it's his food to complete this work. In other words, the thing that sustains him, the thing that energizes him is to complete this mission. And so much so that even the night before his crucifixion, he can say that he's reached the finish line. He prays this in John 17, starting at verse 1. Jesus looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. I have brought you glory on earth by completing. That's the same root word as finish or finished there in the original. I, I brought you glory by completing the work you gave me to do. There it is again, the work. And again, that's his incarnation. That's living a perfect life. That's his teachings. That's his miracles. That's revealing the Father perfectly. That's why he can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is all part of his work. And he says, I've completed it. And he also refers to the fact that he has fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies concerning his life and the work that he would accomplish and the Old Testament expectations of him. So much so that Paul would say in Romans 10, 14, Christ is the culmination. There's our same root word again. Culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who does all the things that they're supposed to do. Oh, wait, sorry. I think I misread that. <laughs> righteousness for everyone who tries to be a good person. No, everyone who what? Believes. Believes. And this is huge because it's popular in our culture to say something like this. Well, you know, I don't really follow any set of beliefs. I just try to be a good person. I think that's really what it all amounts to, being a good person. Anyone ever hear this before from friends, coworkers? Yeah, it's very popular. But I want to ask the question, what makes you think your good is good enough? I mean, it's like being a salesman who's got a quota that he knows he's got to meet, but he never knows if he's met it. And not only that, but how does that make you any different than someone who follows a traditional religious path who does all these things to what? To be a good person. The point of what Jesus is saying here is that you're good, are good. It's not enough. You know, we often focus on 
Christ's death, and that's good. We should do that. But before Jesus died the death that we deserve to die, he lived the life that we were created to live perfectly. Everything that Scripture asked him to do. And yet, you know, the world and even churches, they're filled with people who are still trying to do what Jesus has already done. And you can't do it. It's not in you. You're not up for the task or the job. It's, it's like a story I've told before. In fact, I mentioned it in our Crosswords devotional book, which if you don't have, I encourage you to pick it up at the information desk. It's free, and it's a companion to this series. But uh, some years ago, I was building a fence around our property, and my son Jack, who was all of two years old at the time, Jack just turned 14 on Friday, so you got to give me a moment. Uh, but what seems like yesterday, uh, I was building this fence, and my two-year-old son, he wanted to be daddy's little helper, so much so that Laura made him this little tool belt, kind of, I think that waist is like size 10 or something like that, and he's got nail bags and hammer and all sorts of little tools, and he, he accomplished being just totally adorable. What he was incapable of doing, however, was actually giving me any kind of help. I mean, he was just, <laughs> yeah. I can assure you those nails are no longer there. <laughs> and here's the thing. He had all the desire. He had great intentions. He loved his dad. But he was incapable of doing the work. It's not like it was, you know, 90 or 99% me and, you know, 1% Jack. It was 100% me and 0% Jack because Jack couldn't accomplish what needed to be done, and neither can we. In Jesus' life, he did what we could never do, and it wasn't building a fence. It was more akin to tearing down a fence, a fence that separated us from God. And, and so his work in life encompassed all of this and even more because his life's work was actually culminated in his death. And his second statement speaks to that when he says, it is finished. It means Christ's sacrifice is done. I mean, what looks like his defeat is actually his victory, where God's love is put on display in a way that, that we can't even entirely understand. And if you find yourself sometimes feeling confused, but how, how does God's love equate to Jesus dying on the cross, I want you to know you're not alone. In fact, even when I was in seminary years ago, I can remember being in a class where we were talking about this very same subject, Christ's sacrifice and how it reveals God's love to us. And in the middle of that discussion, one of the students just erupted and he says, I just don't get it. What does Christ dying on the cross have to do with God's love? He goes, I imagine that being like, I'm at the beach and some guy walks up to me and says, I love you so much, here, I'll prove it, and he drowns his son in the ocean. How does God's love equate to Christ's death? Now, the good thing for this student was that seminary is a place where you can ask these types of questions and you can air out 
your confusion, your doubts. It's a safe place to do that. You can get this stuff resolved before you decide to go on and be a professional Christian. Okay, so that was the good news for this guy. The bad news was that we were about to take an exam on how Christ's sacrifice reveals God's love, and this guy was toast. No, that didn't actually happen, but everything else did. And this guy, he knew more than he was letting on, but he was, he was leaning into the mystery of the crucifixion and that there's parts to it that are, that are, that are beyond us that will unfold to us in heaven and wow us in ways that, that we only get little glimpses at now. So whether you've been a Christian for a matter of weeks or decades, whether you're a scholar or not, that, there's aspects to that mystery that will remain. And one of the other things that is somewhat of a disadvantage for us is that we don't have the kind of context that existed in the first century when Jesus was crucified. We don't, we're not surrounded by a sacrificial system like they were, not just in Judaism, but all the religions in, had sacrifices that they were offering all the time. You might go, well, what's up with that? Well, the short answer is this. The Bible says that sin, human rebellion against God, separates us from, us, from him. It alienates us from God. God still loves us just as much, but sin creates this barrier. And so God provided ancient Israel with a system where they could make sacrifice. They could sacrifice an animal, and the animal would bear the death. Its, its death would provide a covering or payment for the sins of the people. It would atone, as it were, for their sins. In fact, the word atonement, that's just a, an invented English word that means the at one meant to be at one with God through the sacrifice. It tries to capture the essence of what's going on in Hebrew language and culture, this at one meant. Well, there's a problem with the sacrificial system. First of all, they had to keep sacrificing over and over again because every time the priest wanted to approach the Lord in the temple, he'd have to make sacrifices. They'd sin. They'd have to get sacrifices. They'd sin again. There'd have to be more sacrifices over and over and over again. Second problem is that this whole system was like when you pay for something with your credit card. Now, you put something on your card, you're going to enjoy the benefit of that thing right then and there, but at the same time, there's a bill that's waiting for you, a bill that will have to be paid for with real money. And that's what the sacrificial system all points toward. It's, it's a run-up. It's a foreshadowing of the sacrifice that Jesus would make. Now that you have some context for sacrifice, and by the way, if it sounds, you know, kind of bloody and barbaric, you know, you know, bear in mind that every time, you know, we have a burger or, you know, choose the leather upholstery in the car or have a leather sofa, you know, some animal made some sacrifice there too, right? So what we do for food and shoes and stuff like that, they did in addition in, in this, this system of atonement. But all that said, Hebrews 10, 9 through 14 says this, we have been made holy, our sins have been atoned for through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That deals with that issue of having to repeat it. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. 
But when this priest, that's Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect, there's our root word again right there, same word as finished or complete, he's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, whether you understand this a little or you understand it a lot, the fact is we all need our sins to be atoned for, every single one of us. Adam Nye, our pastor of young adults, had an excellent devotional earlier this week in the Crosswords book where he talks about a Rembrandt portrait called The Raising of the Cross. Here's that portrait here on screen. And I want you to notice something as we pull in on this portrait here. There's a funny little guy at the foot of the cross, and you'll notice that he's got a European beret on his head, and he's got blonde hair and old Dutch boy haircut. He's got a Van Dyke, you know, little beard. Doesn't look anything like someone would look in first century Palestine. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is Rembrandt Rembrandt drew himself into the portrait. He's making a statement that he was very much at the cross, that he had just as much to do with the people who were there in terms of putting Jesus on the cross, and he too needed his sins to be atoned for through the sacrifice of Christ. And listen, if you don't get this, you will spend your entire life trying to atone for your sins by yourself. Every time you get overwhelmed with guilt or shame, somehow you will tell yourself, you know, I'll I'll make up for this. God, I will make this up for you. Someday I'll make this right. The abortion, the affair, the divorce, the mistake, the lie you tell yourself every day or you feel you have to tell others, your various failures, whatever it is that dogs you, In Christ's sacrifice, he is saying, it is finished. It's done. It's covered. You can be at one with God because of it. And before I make this final observation, you'll notice here in Hebrews 13, or Hebrews 10, verse 13, there's this mention that since Jesus' sacrifice, he waits for his enemies to be, to be made his footstool. What, what's that? What? Jesus, meek and mild? What, what, what do you mean he has enemies? Well, not only does that refer to those who would forever oppose him, those who would cling to wickedness, who would refuse his gracious work or his loving sacrifice, but it, it also refers to his ultimate enemies, sin, death, and the devil. And they're not just his enemies, they're yours. And even so, it is finished. It is finished means Christ's victory done. It's done. Paul talks about this in Romans 5 when he says, For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it. They don't earn it. They receive it. 
will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Sin and death are defeated. And not only that, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since God's children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. These verses taken together say, you don't have to live as a slave anymore. You don't have to live in fear anymore. Sin is not your master. Death is not your ultimate destiny. And you might be thinking, Mark, that's great. You know what, Mark? I even believe that. Because I can see sin is rampant in this world. I can see that death is a very real thing. But the devil, I mean, really? Isn't he some kind of cartoon character or something like that? Not according to the Bible. The Bible portrays him as a very real being who wages war against God and his creation. And that includes you. And that includes me. Christ's victory, however, is complete. Sometimes we wonder how that works. If the devil is a defeated foe, why does he still get to do what he does? I saw a great example of this two months ago. Uh, Bill Gates, who is a brilliant guy, I mean, he's a genius by all accounts. Bill Gates was pitted in a chess match against a young man named Magnus Carlsen. Ever heard of Magnus Carlsen? He was a chess master at age 13. In fact, now at the ripe age of 23, he is the greatest chess player in the world. Two months ago, Bill Gates challenges Magnus Carlsen to a chess match on this Norwegian television show. Uh, Watch this uh, because it's pretty much over before it begins. It's on screen. Yeah, start the clock. That was quick. Oh, that was bad. <laughs> ah, he's a good sport. And something tells me that's not the look that was on Satan's face when Jesus said, checkmate. <laughs> I don't know if you were watching the clock. It took Magnus Carlsen all of 12 seconds to actually perform the moves, including picking up the piece that he knocks over. And so when Jesus says, it is finished, I imagine that Satan goes, ha, he's finished. I've won. 
And then three days later, Jesus rockets out of the tomb, and it's checkmate. Game over. He's a defeated foe. Yeah, he gets to make some moves, but the outcome is, is beyond question. All of this we have. And, and what does this mean for us? How do you respond to Christ's work, his sacrifice, his victory? What would God want us to do in response to all that Christ has done for us? Well, I think, first of all, he'd want us to trust our lives to him, to trust our lives to Jesus. You know, this question of do versus done is answered directly by Jesus in John 6. Look, look at this. This is fascinating. John 6, starting in verse 28, says, Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? What's your list, Jesus? Give us your list so we can be about being good people by keeping your list. Now, watch carefully how Jesus answers in verse 29. He answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And by believe, he means trust, to rely on, to give him your, your life, your, the, the good, the bad, the ugly, the whole thing. Just trust that what he has done is enough. Said differently, give your life to Jesus. I mean, we've just scratched the surface on all that he has done for us. Why wouldn't you want to give yourself to him? I mean, do you really have a better offer? An invitation into a life of, of his grace, his love, his joy, the future that he promises? I mean, it's, it's amazing. And yes, will it change us? You better believe it will. Will we become better people? Yes, as a result of his grace not in order to earn his grace. Our priorities will change. We will become more generous. We will become more loving. We will become more ethical because he is, and he lives through us. It's all in a response. In fact, Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians 5.15 when he says, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Because when you realize what he's done for you, you, get, you just get sucked up into the, the wonder and the adventure and the mission of Jesus, realizing, man, I'm a part of his family. This changes everything. I want to close with this final story. This was in yesterday's Santa Cruz Sentinel. Right on the front page, headline went like this, a fresh start. Such a beautiful story it begins like this. After a decade of shuttling from group and foster homes across the state, David Gordon has found a permanent family. David, 17, and adoptive parents, Heather and Paul Mites Egley, signed papers in March that ended David's journey through the foster system. And one of the things that makes this story so beautiful is that foster children who are 17 years old, especially males, are rarely Adopted. They spend their entire growing up years in a system, and then they're pushed out on their own as adults. And yet, praise the Lord. I mean, and, and, you know, we get it. I mean, he's not a new baby. He's got wounds. He's got behaviors, like all of us. <laughs> and yet, listen to how Heather looks past that. She says, 
I've learned to think about parenting in the long term and not expect children, especially foster teens, to learn behaviors immediately. And I think that's exactly the way God looks at us. He adopts us as we are, behaviors and all, wounds and all, warts and all, and then starts to change us from the inside out. And we, be, we learn how to become a member of the family, so to speak. And here's the best part of the article. This is just so much like the gospel. Listen to this. It says, once the paperwork is processed, David will have a new name, new social security number, new birth certificate, and passport. In other words, a new identity as part of this family. And it says that after the courthouse ceremony, the family celebrated with friends, relatives, and social workers. And his new mom, Heather, says this. The night of the party, David said to me, I'm not in the system anymore. No, he's not. He's in a family. And when you and I trust that it is finished, we're not in a system anymore either. We're in the family of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you that it's done. We can rest in that. And Lord, I pray that if there are folks here that are in this room or listening to my voice elsewhere, that Lord, if they've been all their life trying to earn your favor, earn your approval, somehow earn their way into your good standing, that, Lord, they would hear the finality, the triumph in Christ's voice saying, it is done. We can never add to that. So, Lord, I pray that a, a new appreciation of your grace would penetrate hearts that need that, whether they're new to church or they've been in church for decades. And for those of us, Lord, who by your Spirit have been able to slowly understand all that you have given us in Jesus Christ and the love motivation for it all, Lord, I pray that all the more you would transform us from the inside out, that we would all the more resemble the one who died for us and is raised just as we shall be someday. We pray this in his name the one who paid it all. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.